Hi, and welcome to the Tez News Podcast with me, Dan Worth. We've got a raft of fantastic content from our news and analysis sections to discuss this week. So without further ado, let's start by looking at some of the key news stories from the Tez website this week with our senior journalist, John Roberts. John, welcome to the podcast. Great to chat with you again. And we're going to look at some of the sort of top news stories on TES this week. And I'm going to start with the schools bill, obviously, which um, was sort of put forward this week and had a lot in it. You did some great stories sort of breaking down the key things that schools need to know about what the bill contains. A couple of the most notable ones around multi-academy trusts. Do you want to sort of give us an overview of the two stories and, and, and what the government's putting forward in the bill? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. As we've known for a little while now, the government's ambition is to move all, all schools into multi-academy trusts by 2030. Um, and they had a, a white paper and the Queen's speech, and now we've got the actual bill uh, sort of setting out how they, how they want to do it. And as you said, there's a couple of big things around, around academization. The first one is um, they're introducing a new power, which I think will prove to be really controversial, which is that councils in there can basically apply for maintained schools in their area to become academies. Now, in some cases, they won't need the schools or school governing body support to do that. Um, and the DfE said that the councils might want to do it for some or all of their maintained schools. Um, this is a, a huge kind of step in, in the approach that the government is using to try to move schools towards academy status. Um, and I, I think it could, be, it could be very controversial if councils choose to use it at its most kind of extreme form, if you like, because it it potentially could mean that a local authority might get to the point where it has a small number of schools left, thinks it's struggling to maintain them, and wants to move to an all multi-academy trust model. Um, and if, if schools are voluntary aided or if they have foundation schools, so they have slightly different governance arrangements with either trustees or a, a separate organization that appoints the governing body, um, then they have to get the consent of that school. But if it's a kind of a maintained community school that the council is responsible for, which is thousands of schools, they can, this council can decide, it has to consult with them, but it can decide, yeah, we're going for it, you're going to become an academy. And as far as we can see from the guidance, that the DfE basically say, if the council can't get the school's agreement, it's for the council to decide whether they want to go ahead with this or not. Um, and then the DfE would have the final decision. But at the moment, what happens is schools either opt to apply to become academies themselves, or the DfE can intervene in the case of failing schools. Um, and so there's almost a carrot and a stick, I suppose, in terms of how, how schools get there. Um, this would very much change the landscape because essentially it would take the decision out of the hands of governing bodies of a lot of schools and put it in the hands of the council. It remains to be seen, and it's definitely something we'll be keeping on top of, exactly what councils will do with this power when it comes in in 2023. But the government is looking for ways of moving towards an all-academy system by the end of the decade. Um, and it's already said, and we've done a few stories on this, that councils can set up their own multi-academy trusts. But this, this power is slightly different in as much as it's, it's basically giving the power, power to local authorities to, to sort of say, yes, we want to move to fully academized schools. And for a lot of schools in the area who might not want to do it, there wouldn't be anything they could do to stop it. Um, so yeah, re really interesting, but also really controversial. Yeah, no, well, that's an excellent summation of it. And, and I mean, just only recently, I was talking to a, a school head who was, who was saying that he doesn't really have any interest in joining a mat, even though he's had you know overtures from nearby mats to join. Um, but as like I said, in this model, he, his hand might be forced because the council that he's currently with decide, yes, we're going to shoot to a mat. 
that's the way it is. So very controversial. And that actually does open up nicely to your other story from the schools bill, though, which is although you, as you say, the government is pushing pushing schools. It wants it wants mats. It wants diseases as the model for the future. Um, the the bill does contain new powers to give it more control over mats. So it's not like a free for all. You know, powers to sanction and close them, which is something that it sounds like. You're reading your story that it was a sort of a bit of a grey area before, but they're looking to strengthen their hand in this area. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So I, I think what's really happened with the school system over the last decade is that it's kind of so. So academies were introduced as autonomous schools, but what what we've ended up with is multi academy trusts, where either one school takes on more and more and becomes a kind of a a strong provider, and the government has kind of identified that as as what they think is the, the best practice in the academy sector. So we've now got the emergence of multi academy trusts. And the government now wants that to be the whole system. But we, they didn't have a kind of a framework in place to regulate that, to kind of recognize that that's what the school system is going to be like. So a lot of the interventions they had were kind of individual school level around the funding agreements of individual academies. So if things were going wrong, I think the Department for Education in this, in the white paper and the subsequent schools bill is basically an admission that they didn't have sufficient power to intervene effectively when things, when, when multi-academy trusts were, were, was deemed to be failing. And I think as well, the other thing that's kind of been highlighted is that there isn't a defined national set of standards of what's expected of a multi-academy trust. A lot of the rules are around governance and finance, but the, the, the Department for Education is trying to bring everything into, under one footing. So it's creating a new standards framework, and we're still to see the exact detail of what, what those standards will include. But as you say, these standards will be underpinned by new trust-level intervention powers, which basically will give the government the ability to direct a multi-academy trust to follow standards if it thinks that they're not doing so. It will include some of the powers that they currently have on individuals um, around individual academies, around financial notices to improve, but it also includes the kind of the ultimate sanction of terminating the funding agreement at a trust-wide level. Now, I think that will only be ever be kind of um, enacted in the most extreme cases, but there have, over the course of the last 10 years, been a series of kind of um, multi-academy trust controversies um, or academy, academy controversies. And I think the Department for Education is basically recognizing that, I guess, it's kind of mechanisms for regulating and holding organizations to account haven't kept pace with the changes of the structure, if that makes sense, the changes of school structure. The bit that we are still waiting to hear a bit more about is accountability. So Ofsted have wanted to inspect multi-academy trusts for a long time. They've made the case that the, as multi-academy trusts are often the decision makers, setters of the curriculum, the tone of the school culture, the, you know, if that's where the, the, the influential thinking and sort of drive comes from, then Ofsted ought to be examining them and they ought to be responsible for, for the, the education they provide. Now, the white paper does talk about creating new accountability measures. And Ofsted, Amanda Spielman recently said that she thinks um, inspection, math level inspection would be, would be a central part of that. that. That'll be the next really interesting thing to see because I guess in the way that the government has, has another challenge, which is it's trying to move the remaining schools that aren't academies into multi-academy trusts. It's trying to get single academy trusts to expand or move into mats. It's trying to get smaller mats to grow. So it has to make this an appealing picture. But at the same time, it has to be able to demonstrate that it can hold the system to account. But it doesn't want to, I think it probably doesn't want to send a message out to the sector that mats are going to suddenly face a much higher bar in terms of what's expected of them, if that makes sense. Because it doesn't want to put, them, put people off wanting to become one. Um, it's really interesting to see it seems like moving to a fully economized system has been an aspiration for a long time. But I think one thing I would say about this, then, whatever you think about that idea, this set of proposals does seem to be quite a lot of kind of 
I don't know, deep thinking about how they could actually make this happen. But I think it just remains to be seen whether whether the levers that they're using will be enough. You know, if, if we were sat here in four or five years' time, will there have been a transformation of the system, and will it, or, or will it remain as it is at the moment, where the majority, you know, there's a real split where the majority of secondaries are now in multi-county trusts or, or single-county trusts, but the majority of primary schools are still maintained schools. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, as you say, there's so many. I guess like anything in the world, isn't there? There's so many unforeseen consequences and issues when you, when you set on a path in a certain direction that you have to then cross those bridges at some point and that's sort of what's happening here but it shows as you say that the, the deep thinking that's going on and to, to my mind it's almost whatever stage you're at in your career education right now whether you're in a mat or not you are going to be caught up in this you know your school is going to join a mat or you're going to be in a school moved you're already in one and it's going to grow or you know you're gonna to have to fight a fight about do you really do you want to stay council maintained so i think it shows that you know these things have a big impact on, on education and We'll move on to our last story now, which actually in, in some ways relates to the, the schools, but because there was things around attendance in there. And later on in the podcast, I'll be talking to Gronje Hallahan about um, school attendance policies element that was in the, the, the schools bill. But on attendance, we had a very interesting exclusive this week from Charlotte Santry, who retained, obtained some really interesting data from the DfE under a freedom of information request um, about uh, attendance advisors, which was something they announced last November, these £500 a day expert advisors were going to be available for people to use to tackle attendance. Charlotte, though, got some very interesting data which shows that actually, well, multi multi academy trusts, again, we're talking about them, have not been that keen to take government op- on this offer. Um, John, do you want to explain a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you just said, um, so attendance has been a real focus since Nadim Zahawi took, took over. And I guess part of that is because it's been such a massive issue in the pandemic um, and uh, particularly kind of at the peaks of kind of COVID waves. But nevertheless, there's been a series of things that they've done to try and um, improve attendance. And as you say, in the the schools bill, there's there's, there's a whole raft of measures. But late last year, they they came up with this plan to basically kind of parachute in advisors. Now, they've done this, they've used this approach before on school finance, like we're going to send in finance advisors to find efficiencies. This time it was kind of experienced school leaders um, are going to be sent to either multi-academy trusts or local authorities where the department had identified the, 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 the attendance levels in, in schools in those areas or in those trusts could, could benefit from this advice. But as you say, um, so Charlotte Santiago did some digging into what the take-up had been and around half of the multi-academy trusts that were offered it have accepted it and the other half have turned it down. Um, slightly higher proportion of, of councils have, have, have taken them up. But um, Jeff Barton, the General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, said that these figures show that the, the idea of parachuting in ad- attendance advisors to solve problems is a little naive and that actually it's more complex. I think there's a... One of the things that comes up when this issue is raised and one of the things that head teachers sometimes tell us is that the schools are often kind of acting alone in this space now, whereas maybe 15 years ago there would be a whole sort of network of local authority support services that they might be able to tap into to work with families to address issues um, around why business is regularly attending. Now, it kind of, a lot of that has fallen away. A lot of kind of early intervention on the social care side isn't as, as prevalent as it used to be. And so I think schools quite often feel themselves like a one-stop shop for, for all kind of aspects of public service in there for, for a family who aren't bringing their child into school regularly. Um, so yeah, so. It's really, really striking data. And I think, it, I guess it shows 
the limitations of something that sounds really dramatic and eye-catching and maybe appeals to us as journalists as a headline of parachuting in supervisors. But actually, even in the case of multi-economy trusts, you know, around half of them have basically said that they don't think they'll benefit from this, which I think shows, you know, that they don't think there's some magic wand or simple set of advice that can that can transform this problem. The one thing that I think the government needs to do is to kind of unpick the relationship between the COVID pandemic and persistent absence that flows beyond it. Um, and I guess the advisors might be able to do some of that work. But I think there's a temptation to kind of say there's COVID absence and then there's other absence. But I think the, the other absence has gone up a lot since the pandemic. And it's kind of understanding that, uh, the various ways that's happening, that I think will be key to the government achieving their, um, their aims. Well, I, I, it's funny because the reason I was trying to interject was that what we're talking about there or, or, what, or what you've outlined there is exactly what Gloria and I will go on to talk about shortly in the podcast um, based on the attendance policy requirement they've brought forward in the schools bill, which exactly that point when I spoke to people, they said, well, it's all very well and good telling schools you've got to have an attendance policy, but it's the support services around schools that, that really need more focus because without them, there's only so much a school could do to you know, tackle a, a problem at home or in the reasons for someone not turning up at school beyond you know, having a written policy, which most do anyway. But again, I'm giving away some of the later podcast content here, but hopefully people will be enticed to listen on. Um, but certainly, as you said, a great story from Charlotte, really interesting. It does show the limitations of some of these things and, and sort of that, you know, like you say, the, the, the punchy headlines don't always translate into real world outcomes. Um, but John, thank you so much for your insights and the stories there. Um, anyone listening there, you can you can find those stories on the website. Um, the first couple of schools bill stories, you know, they start with schools bill. You can find them under the news section, and um, and Charlotte's story on the on the attendance advisors has the headline half of mats of the DFE attendance advice reject it. So you should be able to find that or Google it. Uh, but definitely worth reading the stories in full to get the full picture. But John, thank you again for joining us as ever in your expert insight. Much appreciated, and uh, speak to you again soon, no doubt. Thanks. Cheers, Tom. Hi, Gronia. Welcome to the podcast once again. And like last week, we have quite an eclectic mix of topics we're going to talk about. We've got something on attendance. We're going to look at exams. But first of all, we're going to talk about multi-academy trust CEOs, which I think, although people, not everyone listening to this will be a multi-academy trust CEO, um, that many people will probably be working, you know, for school in a mat or will going to be doing that in the future, certainly if the government gets its way. So we were sort of, I think we, me and you were talking maybe about this a bit a while ago, about this sense that there is a there's sort of era 2.0 coming into the sector. The first generation of MAT CEOs have been around for a good sort of 10 years, done some great work setting up these MATs, you know, clearly, you know, impressed the people in government. They've grown massively. But a lot of them are retiring, they're handing on the baton. You've seen a lot of announcements about new CEOs coming in. So we asked um, Zofia Nietmus to look into this as, as a sort of long read and go and talk to lots of CEOs, both outgoing, incoming, the Confederation of Schools Trust. She's put together a really good long read, really looking at this and sort of how it's evolving. I've already had some really nice, good, interesting feedback from CEOs who've read it, so they think it makes a lot of interesting points about where the sector's going. That's a long intro. What did you think about it? Um, and what were some things that you sort of thought might be of interest particularly to, to schools, whether they're in maps now or maybe joining one in the future? I thought it was so interesting because it's one of the questions when you ask a teacher, like, oh, what's your school like? What's your mat like? The comment they'll always go to is they'll tell you what the CEO's like. Mm. And I think it's that it, CEOs in mats are so important because they're that person at the top where everything like comes down from them, that attitude, the culture, the direction all comes from that CEO and they're such an important person. Mm. And, you know, I've got to confess, until you wrote this piece, I hadn't really thought about the fact that 
yep, they're going to be retiring. Yep, they're all going to need to have replacements. And one of the things that Steve Lancashire says in the, 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 your piece. Zofia's piece. Zof's piece. Sorry, <laughs> Zof, in Zof's piece, was the fact that um, he was talking about the, the replacements coming in. So, you know, one the, he said one of the most significant roles as chief exec has been managing the talent in the organisation and creating a constant pipeline of really great people. And this is it, isn't it? We can't have 2.0 unless you've got people in the organisation mm -hmm. primed to move up and into that role. And, you know, sometimes when the, the CEOs for the first, like CEOs version one, not all of them were, were in education, but I think you could say that in the new trend of the new people that are coming up, that people from, from Matt's who are experienced and you know, growing that talent. And we know that there's a shortage of head teachers and there's not many people who want to move in, into that role. And that's something we've got to, to address. And I guess this is the other thing, isn't it? Addressing that, that feeding line of people into, mm -hmm. into this position, because it's not, it's not an easy job to do. There's not many people who can do it. And it's about getting the right people in the right places, isn't it? Yes. Well, that, that, that's a, like you say in the piece looks at that, doesn't it? Like it, it hiring from within and having to create that talent pool. But of course, obviously you don't want to like someone, I think it's someone called Tim Withers, who was an, a CEO. And he said, you can't be like the kingmaker or the queenmaker and, and just be the person who goes, I want that person to take over, you know, like, and how do you get that done best? Equally, though, there's a sort of sense of a small but growing number of CEOs who are coming in from outside education. Um, I think it's one called, uh, I think it's Rowena Hackwood, who, um, yes, that is correct, who, um, who, who's coming from a non-education background, but has, you know, lots of the sort of broad skills you need to run multi-academy trips, which in many ways are not purely educational. You know, it's about, it's about running a big team, it's about budgets, it's about marketing, you know. I think that's something that's very interesting as well. So yeah, I thought for, for people obviously in that position or going into that position now, it's going to be relevant. But hopefully for people maybe who are, you know, aspiring you know, middle leaders now and looking to the top or, or somebody's just become on as headship, but, but, you know, ultimately it's looking for those top positions because, you know, people do, don't they? People do have their sort of career goals quite, you know, not all of us do. I've never been one like that, but I know some people out there are like, I'm going to be a CEO by the time I'm 35 or a head teacher by 30, you know. Hopefully a useful piece to sort of see where the market's going and understand what these new people, these new sort of top people are thinking and, and what you might need to do to get into a similar position in another 10 years time. But yeah, really, it's a long piece. There's a lot in it. We're not able to talk for a lot of it, but I definitely think it's worth reading. And I say, given the government is pushing Matt so hard, it feels to me that's something that everyone kind of needs to know a bit about just to understand where your sector is going. Great. Well, we're going to move on to something, again, like I promised, something very different now and exams. And Gronia, you had the um, honour of interviewing Jo Saxton, the head of Ofqual, this week, and you've written an interview up with her. Um, tell us all about that. What was that like? Oh, gosh, that was so exciting. So it's no secret that I absolutely love exams and getting to speak to Jo Saxton was just my geeky dreams of exams <laughs> stuff come true. And, you know, this year is a really different year, isn't it? We've never had... Um, the pre-releases before like this or the, you know, the um, adapted materials for, for students to have. We haven't had the hints. We've got re reduced exam papers. It's no wonder if you're feeling a little bit confused about what's going on, um, especially outside of your subject. You probably know what's happening for your subject, but what's happening in all of the subjects to get an overview. We've got this piece that's out on Friday that's going to explain, explain it all. And one of the most interesting things I found out by um, in, in the interview was talking about how, you know, something that everyone's saying is, what is this midpoint? So we know that results this year are going to be adjusted so that we're not having a huge step down after the, the high of last year of the best results ever, because of course we used a different assessment program. So you'll naturally not get the same results as what you'd get 
doing normal terminal exams. So what are they going to be then? What is this midpoint? How, it's going, how is it going to work out? And I think, you know, what a lot of people might have thought is that they're just going to get the grades. And then what a lot of people might think is they're just going to adjust them and put them to the percentage point that they want. And talking to, to Jo, she explained to me exactly why that wouldn't work. And um, Jo used the example of the English paper as a, as a way to explain why we can't just make these big changes. If you take the 200 marks that are available and you've got thousands of students sitting it, if you change the grade boundary by one mark, that might mean you've got 80,000 students who have their marks changed and then suddenly the, the percentage of students passing that exam leaps by like 4%. It's not as easy as, as just saying, right, we're going to, to have this year that 73% of children are going are to pass. We have to wait and see what children do in the exams. And so nothing can be decided until those exams are sat, the marks are done, and we can actually look at what's there and then start adjusting. So that was the reason why they don't know what the percentage is going to be until the children take the exams. Yeah, you can see why it's so difficult this year, isn't it? After years of, well, you know, pre-pandemic, years of not of the same thing every year, then two years without them. And now this year... Um, do you think, is there any sort of long-term things out of this that you think are going to change exams or did you give any hints of things that might sort of stick around or do you think next year it'll all be back to what, you know, normal and everyone will be very happy about that? We did hear this week that the longer exam timetable might be here to stay, which I think for some schools they'll be cheering because, you know, exams are more, more spread out and that's better for some students because having them all in a rush back to back is, you know, it's, it's tough, it's really hard. Children do far more exams today than they did before these new specification changes. I think it was an increase of 10 hours and they do even more. When you and I were at school, we didn't do half as many exams as what kids do now because we did coursework. So, you know, perhaps the, the spread of them being over a, a greater number of weeks is a good thing. And that's something we're going to see as a permanent change to the exam series. Mm, yes. Well, like you said, a lot, it's, a, it's a lot of um, big questions around exams. So it's great to get that chance to talk to Joe. Um, I know there's also... Um, new story that was out on Thursday, maybe we'll talk about as well. Um, so yeah, really interesting stuff. Now for our final piece, we're going to look at something about attendance policies. And this is a piece I wrote um, when there was a response to attendance, uh, attendance consultation that the government put out, um, I think it was last week, actually. And one of the things they contained within that was a, a requirement for all schools to have an attendance policy. And it starts off by suggesting that it wants these to be, it's sort of, it's, you know, we would like you to have a written attendance policy. And then it also says that in time, the Secretary of State wants to, you know, make this a legal requirement. Um, so, you know, you will have to have one whether you want to or not. Um, but actually, uh, that, that might sound like, you know, more sort of top-down government requirements, um, and it is. But actually, the reality is most schools probably have written attendance policies. Uh, James Bowen at NAHT told me he didn't think actually it was that big a deal in, in that regard. And he said, you know, most schools probably just require a few tweaks to their policy to kind of align with the bullet point list of what the government would want, would want to see in any such policies. Um, that said, though, they all said, you know, it's all very well and good saying to schools, you must have written attendance policies and do this and do that. But if you don't give them the support to then follow through on what they're meant to put in these policies, i.e. access to wider support services that can help with, you know, children that have persistent absence and the reasons why that might be, it's just more hefty, weighty guidance documents. Um, what did you think of that? You know, when you were in schools, again, presumably attendance policies, is that fair to say? You, you know, you have them and they're, they're pretty well understood. And do you think there's anything what the government's pushing here that will be useful or, or is it going to kind of come down to helping 
the people around schools. I can't think of a school that doesn't have an attendance policy. It's a pretty standard thing and it's something that you share with parents and children and staff and everybody knows what the attendance policy is because attendance is such a big thing in schools. I mean, they normally do assemblies with, with handing out the certificates. Like all kids will know what the attendance policy is. It's, it's, a, it's not a new thing. It's not, mm. and just like it's not a new thing, it's not going to solve this. That's, the, mm. that's what really strikes me. And I think in your piece, one head said that he felt they just weren't getting to the heart of the problem. And you've got him quoted saying, by far the bigger issue is getting under the skin of the reasons why pupils are persistently absent and ensuring there are high quality support services available. And like, that's it. This new, this new guidance does nothing to address mm -hmm. the reasons why. I mean, that's it for me in a nutshell. All of the policy writing, you can give people fixed penalty notices. You can increase expectations for schools. Yep, yep, they can comply, they can do it. But will it make a difference if we're not addressing the root cause of why children don't turn up to school? And I hope this, this announcement, these changes, just one element of the whole effort to reduce absence and the rest is a little bit more practical, more focused on the community and societal issues that cause persistent absence from schools. Because you're expecting schools to solve a problem that exists in society and is actually mm. beyond, so often is beyond their control. That's what needs addressing and having a, an absence policy isn't going to help that kid who has to be a carer for his mum and his sister and their siblings get to school yeah. on time. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's, it's hard to escape that that's what this feels like, isn't it? It's a sticking plaster thing. It sounds good. I mean, I saw some national newspapers saying something like, you know, it's part of Adeem Zahawi's plan to crack down on truantism. And it's just like, it's not though, is it? it asking schools to have a written policy is not a, it's not a way to crack down on that because it's not like schools were lounging around before saying, yeah, turn up if you want. We have, you know, we don't have any, oh, what, what time are they meant to start? I don't know, but oh, I'm not sure. Of course, they've got policies. Of course, they tell parents. Of course, they follow up. But if like exactly as you described, they've got, family problems they've got there and they come from a you know difficult household if the transport is broken down and you know even that like you know are there enough buses to get them in time does the we just hear more and more funding cuts and, and more and more of expectation on schools and sometimes the, the two cannot meet you know the, the bridge between the two is not it's not a school's got to jump over that gap it can't be done so i did i did feel the same and and say so what james bowen said and the head you, you mentioned said sort of chime with that um and even some lawyers even what sort of chimed in because they said well you know um if you make this a legal requirement, but you do nothing to help schools deliver on it, where does that leave schools? Bit of a tricky grey area. I mean, obviously we're way off that. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But um, yeah, it doesn't necessarily strike you as, a, as the most sort of sensible thing. But if it's going to become legal, schools are going to have to do it. They have their policies. They're going to have to check the idea to these, these bullet point type things that the government seems to say that's got to be in there. Hopefully it's not a lot of work, but it is more work. And it, maybe it's not the right work. That seems to be the view. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> well, on that rather downbeat note i feel we'll end the podcast but um but yeah thank you Gronia, for joining us interesting stuff as i promised we've looked through there so do check out the the attendance piece the interview with joe saxton the matt ceo piece you know all good stuff for the weekend reads save them on your phone get them via twitter on our social accounts hey miss hallahan is Gronia's account i'm i'm at Dan Worth. i wasn't a teacher so i didn't have that or mr <laughs> worth but do let us know what you think and we will hopefully have you back with us for the next week's podcast Thank you.